Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be back. It's been a few years. I'm a little older, a little grayer, maybe a little wiser, but we'll find out, see how it goes. Um, But thanks for inviting me to come back. I'm here because Tim is with his mom and dad, and uh, his dad's suffering from dementia. They're having to move into memory care. Tim called me, I think, on Wednesday and just said, hey, could you come? And I said, that that's something I'd be glad to do. So I'm here to support Tim and here to um, encourage you. I'd like you to stand for the reading of the scripture. Uh, it's Isaiah chapter 43, beginning at verse 14. And uh, I'm going to be preaching through this text today. There's going to be three movements. So uh, I'll read it for you, and then we'll take it a step at a time. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer the Holy One of Israel. For your sake, I will send to Babylon and bring down as fugitives all the Babylonians in the ships in which they took pride. I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's creator, your King. This is what the Lord says, he who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, And they lay there, never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the desert and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This this sounds like it's happened, and it hasn't. This is 200 years before it happened. Babylon invaded Israel, took the people away 600 miles across the desert, If you want to read about what that was like, you would need to read the book of Jeremiah in the Bible. He is writing when it happens. Isaiah is writing 200 years before it happens as if it's going to happen and telling the people in advance, when this does happen, don't forget this. So in this text, we get a chance to see how God works in the darkest and most difficult times in Israel's history. This is not a story that can be transposed across to America as what God does for America because he did it for Israel. That's a great mistake that the church has made over the years, especially in America. It has nothing to do with the United States. It has everything to do with Israel. But this is the God who watches out for his children and now through Christ in all ages. So the character of God and the plan of God revealed for us as Christ followers and the church of Jesus Christ is written across this text. So let's dive into it together. It's a good text to look at because it's a time when there would have, become, uh, when there would have been massive fear. When Israel was invaded, when Jerusalem was destroyed, when the temple was destroyed, everything was lost. It was a time of massive concern What is happening? And I think about us today and the church today and believers today, and I see a lot of fear. I see people fearing about fear about the economy, economic uncertainty. I see others thinking about climate change, especially next generation starting to really realize what might be happening. 
I see political conflict and division that stirs a whole lot of uncertainty as we move towards another election and lots of people are talking, possible corruption in our government and things. I see talk about racism and the breakdown of relationships in our culture and our society. People talk about nuclear engagement again and that hasn't been talked about like it is now. For quite a while, artificial intelligence and the issues go on and on. You have your issues today. You have your own personal issues today. A health issue, an economic issue, a relationship issue, a family issue. This is for you. This text preaches right into your heart of uncertainty and fear. On top of the uncertainty, just finishing a book called The Great Dechurching, by David and Graham, 40 million Americans have left the church in the last 25 years. 40 million Americans have left the church in the last 25 years, and there are reasons for their leaving. And that ties into this text, because this text brings us back to the reasons for staying, and I'd like to drive into those today. You probably, if you've been around a little while, have heard the one part of the text where it says in verse 19, see, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? People like that text. It gives them a sense of hope. But what they don't realize is that text was written at the darkest moment in Israel's history. Babylon had laid siege to Jerusalem. This is 586. The siege had lasted 30 months they had burned down the city, but more importantly, you guys, they had destroyed the temple, the very place of God's abiding presence. Nothing could have devastated Israel more than knowing that the place where God dwells among us is gone. After all these years, after being in the tabernacle for 400 years and being in the temple for 400 years, the better part of a, you know, of a thousand years of worship, the place of worship where God dwells has been destroyed and we are gone and we do not know what will happen next. Into that context, into the context where the entire national structure of the kingdom, which was ordained by God himself, came crashing down. Into that context, Isaiah is writing words of hope saying, see, I am doing a new thing. So whatever the darkness was in this situation, it eclipses any darkness we experience in our world or our individual lives today. His fear often eclipses our ability to see. In my 45 years of pastoring, I have watched a lot of fear creep into the church, across the church, but especially into the evangelical church. Over the last four to five years, I have found myself saying as a pastor, I thought we were better than this. I thought we were deeper than this. I thought we knew more about where we hold on for hope and light and help. And I thought we knew more about how to stand for light in a broken, dark, and confused culture. But we, many, have capitulated to fear in our culture, and Isaiah offers us three shifts that need to occur in our thinking today to take us back to center. Let's look at those. The first one is in verse 14 and 15. And we get into God talking about what he's going to do in light of what happened to Jerusalem. And Isaiah is forecasting the future of goodness. Verse 14, this is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. 
For your sake I will send to Babylon and bring those people down as fugitives. All of them, all the Babylonians, in the ships in which they took pride. I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's Creator, your King. First shift, not the captor, but the Creator. He's saying, you're all focused on Babylon right now. Babylon does not have the final word. Wherever the destruction comes into our lives, wherever the setback, national, political, local, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your children, in your personal life, wherever the setback comes from, at those times the enemy can seem overwhelming to us. And some of you feel overwhelmed today by discouragement, confusion, and darkness. Israel felt hopelessly devastated. And Isaiah says to him in advance, God The temple has been blown up, but God has not abandoned you. God will never lose sight of you, no matter how dark it gets. It's not the captor, but the creator. Yet we so easily lose sight, we lose hope, we lose perspective. And we call this spiritual warfare, which I think is a term that gets exaggerated in a way that binds us all to a way of thinking that somehow God is about 51% and our enemy, the devil, Satan, or whatever you want to call him, the demonic, has about 49 and they are neck and neck and we always have to watch out because just maybe. C.S. Lewis confronts that so clearly in his book, Screwtape Letters, and he says this, listen up, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, Christians, can fall about the devil's. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. One is to say, I think the demonic is just a a fabrication of religious people and I don't believe in that stuff. And the other is to become overly focused and overly aware and overly engaged in something is going on and we can't find out and who knows how the enemy's working and we need to do special things to get behind all this and we get into a whole demonic pathway into confusion and darkness and more confusion as we go farther down that pathway trying to find our way out. 1 John 3, 8 says, the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And Romans 16, 20 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And Paul, who had the most to say about spiritual warfare, especially in the book of Ephesians, if you read that, He had the most to say. He referred to the devil or Satan or our enemy about 20 times in all of his writings. And he refers to Jesus Christ over 20 times in the first chapter of Ephesians. He is just basically saying, we are not unaware of the devil's schemes and we know exactly how to move into them. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. We are not subject to being consumed by enemy warfare. Enemy fixation can happen to the church. It can happen to you. It's happened to me at times. Martin Luther's a great example for all of us who led us through the Reformation in the 1500s, and he often succumbed to depression, which is something that I would say I've struggled with in my life anxiety and depression. So I look at guys like Martin Luther and go, well, if you struggle, I guess, you know, we all can at least say, hey, there's some people out there who understand what I'm feeling. And they were great leaders in the church. One time Martin Luther picked up his ink from his ink well back in the day when you dipped to write. And he felt like Satan was so present in his room, he just took the ink well and he threw it at him and smashed it against the wall. 
He became so preoccupied by the darkness of enemy and spiritual warfare and all that could be happening. And finally, one day, his wife, who could see through it all, dressed in black, black hood, came walking into his study and started walking back and forth. And she just said, God is dead. God is dead. God is dead. And Luther, knowing his theology, says, nonsense, woman, God is not dead. And then she looked at Martin Luther. His wife said, if you believe in God is alive, then why don't you live like it? Why don't you act like it? What a great theme for us today. Luther's words then that he wrote in the great song, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Those Satans and devils should come. We know the one little word that should fail him. If you're struggling with believing confidently, go back and look up the words for a mighty fortress is our God and take stand with Martin Luther again who struggled just like you and me with depression, anxiety, and fear. And he knew exactly how to come to address that by the time he had worked his way through. Not the captor, but the creator. First in the text. Second theme in the text is not the past, but the future, verses 16 to 19a. This is what the Lord says. Now, what is he referring to here? He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? The people are now all in Babylon. They're in captivity. Many have been killed and starved to death. The temple and place of God's dwelling has been destroyed. And all they can think about and sing about are the good days when they came out of Egypt and Pharaoh's army was drowned in the sea. As it says, you drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements. They lay there never to rise again snuffed out like a wick. This is the greatest story in the Old Testament. This is the story of the Passover, which the Jewish people celebrate every year. It is at the center and the heart of Jewish faith at this time and always has been, always will be. This is the grandest story of what God is like. And after highlighting that story again, Isaiah says, I know you're discouraged and I know all you can do is think back about the good old days. And then he says, regarding that story, this is kind of dramatic, forget that story. Forget the former things. Don't dwell on the past. I want to do a new thing. Man, forget the biggest story in the Old Testament. Not forget it, but forget it as the only thing that can ever happen that God can ever do. I want to do something else. We are forward-looking people. Not the past, but the future. This is the greatest story God can give us that in Christ, we are grounded for the future. This is a day and age when people are losing all kinds of perspective about whether the future holds anything hopeful for the church. Culture wars have just taken over the heart and mind of so many believers. We have got to get back to what we once believed, what we once did, what our culture once stood for when it was Christian, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm just saying, we are just all looking into the past, banking on some kind of political breakthrough in the culture war that will change the situation for the church and for Christians and evangelical believers in this country. And God is not interested in a political move. 
God is interested in a spiritual move. Young people are leaving the church in the book that I read, The Great Dechurching. Young people are leaving the church, and one of the great reasons is because the parent generation has become so politicized in their religious experience and the way they talk and the way they practice their faith. Politicization of the church is, in my heart as a pastor, I believe is one of the most dangerous things that's happening to the American church today. Pastors need to not be pulled to the right or the left, and Jesus gives us the pathway forward. Pilate had all the political power of Rome over Jesus. Pilate is about to decide what is Jesus' fate And he's asking Jesus, don't you know what I can do to you, the political power that I hold over you? And Jesus looks at Pilate and he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. He steers right into the heart of Roman authority and says, you don't own me and you don't own the future. I will not be politicized by the fear that you raise over me today. The greatest and most important days in the history of the church when they were staring at the power of the Jewish leaders and mostly at the power of Rome. And Jesus says, but my kingdom is from another place. He's basically saying, stop focusing on Babylon here. Stop focusing on Rome at the time of his life and death. And stop focusing on America and American politics today. My kingdom is not of this world. The greatest enemy's move, the greatest move of the enemy to, to the new move of God, the greatest move against it, are leaders from the last move of God, so they have said. Greatest enemy to the new move of God are leaders in the last move of God. It's the older generation that often can only see what was and what should be and how do we get back and how do we have that experience again. I just want you to know if you're a millennial today or a Gen Z, don't give in to that. God is working in each and every generation and you need to raise your eyes to the kingdom of God and the ways that work in this situation at this time. It's football season. Some of you were watching yesterday or today and I just want to go back to 1906 for a little illustration. <laughs> 1906, football was just a running game, no pass, just run. Four yards, two yards, five yards, just grind it out down the field. And in 1906, they introduced the pass and said, you know what, let's make it a little more exciting. If you're really behind, maybe at the end of the game, you're going to want to throw the ball and take a huge risk, and you can But that year, St. Louis shifted from a running game to a passing game before anyone else was shifting. And they outscored their opponents in total, adding up the whole year, 402 to 11. God is introducing the forward pass to the church in each and every generation. And there's coming a time when the forward pass will take over 1 John 3, 2, dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. There is one last pass and it is forward pass and it is God's great touchdown for all of humanity for we shall see him as he is, not the past, 
but the future. Last theme in this text, after he's highlighted in verse 19, see, I'm doing a new thing, now it springs up, do you not perceive it? Then he goes into, I'm not going to airlift you back to Jerusalem and set you up the way it was. It will not be easy. And the text reads, I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the desert and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. God reminds Israel that they will be going back, and they did because it was prophesied 70 years later they would be released, and they were. But the people are basically saying to themselves, exactly, Isaiah, exactly how do you think we're going to get back? Because there's 600 miles of desert between us and our broken, wrecked city with no temple. That sounds like a pipe dream, Isaiah. Some of us are in the desert today. We're experiencing fear and hopelessness around health or family or finances or church or our spiritual journey. I'm an idealist. Idealists like destinations, not deserts. And we're often kind of thinking, how do I get to the destination where it's all good again? All of us have certainly experienced great disillusionment, but it's not the desert we're trying to get over in one jump. We will not be airlifted back to a perfect situation. It's a stream in the desert that will lead us back across. It's the stream. And I have found these streams, especially over the last five, six, seven years of my spiritual challenge and deep disillusionment at times. It's a person who comes into my life. It's a stream. It's a song that I start listening to and singing and need to play it again and again. It's a poem that I read and I get it printed out and I keep it tucked in my journal. It's a retreat when I go away with some people and all of a sudden I go, man, God is really present here. It's a conference maybe that I went to or a verse that I read or a sermon that I heard. It's just a stream. Maybe it's this sermon for you today that you go, that was a stream and it will get me to the next stream from stream to stream across the desert. You can stay in the desert a long time if you can move from stream to stream. George MacDonald, the great preacher who also um, influenced others, um, especially C.S. Lewis, said this, everything difficult indicates something more than our theory of life embraces. Think about that for a minute. Everything difficult indicates something more than our theory of life embraces. When you're running into the dark place in life, when it's lasted weeks or months and it won't reverse, that difficult place that you cannot figure out indicates something more than your theory of life embraces. Something is behind that where God is revealing a new way of thinking and living and walking and believing and knowing and loving and trusting. Not the desert, but the streams. Let me conclude. Three shifts in your thinking. Not the captor, but the creator. Not the past, but the future. Not the desert, but the streams. Mosaic Church.
the fall always represents a new season in the church. I love the fall. January didn't really affect anything. Beginning of the year, we just sort of get used to winter and keep going. (laughs) But the fall, the fall feels like I would like a fresh start. I would like, I would like something to be new. I would like something to open up. I would like a stream. I would like some optimism. I would like to see the future in a way that God sees it. The fall is a time to rethink, recommit, re-envision. On the day that Jesus dies, everyone has lost complete hope. Confidence has been shattered. They're not even sure that the God they believed in who was going to uh, use this Jesus as their Messiah, what has this God done that he would allow this to happen? We talk about deconstruction in our spiritual experience, the deconstructing work that was going on in the disciples and the women and all of the people who were followers of Jesus. On the Saturday between Friday and Sunday, the deconstruction work was going through the roof into that context. While there on Saturday in their darkest moment of confusion, Jesus has gone into hell and has released captives and preached the gospel, according to Peter. Jesus is not confused or lost or dark. Jesus is way out in front, moving forward, captor, not the captor, but the creator, not the past, but the future, not the desert, but the streams. And Jesus is opening up a massive stream on which we hold on through whatever happens to us as individuals or in the church. And on that day when he rose from the dead, he said, get back up, get going. This is not the end. This is just the beginning. Your hope for the future is in Jesus Christ. And that's where we go today to talk not about the past, but the future and our future living into this fall season as we become more Christocentric, less politicized, less concerned about culture wars, less concerned about the issues up, down, and sideways, and more concerned about the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the hope of the world. Therefore, we are people of hope in this culture. We are people of love. We do not fight. We do not batter people. We do not use social media to discourage people. We hold up the hope and love of Jesus Christ everywhere we go. And we do not capitulate to the darkness that's around us or the darkness that's within us. Colossians 2.15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them at the cross. We come to the table. We come to the place that brings hope and forgiveness and love and a future every time we come. This is Christ's body. This is Friday, Saturday, and the great breakthrough of Sunday, broken for you in remembrance of me. When you want to remember somebody, you have a picture in your wallet. You have a picture of my boys in the wallet. I always want to remember my family. Jesus said, I can't give you a picture for your wallet, but this is my picture every time you gather. This, do this to remember me. And don't do it casually. Don't come quickly. Don't even get up and come. If it's casual. But if you believe what this says about the future and about your hope in your life, 
then come and celebrate it, the gifts of God for the people of God. Let's sing.